0: I'm Tova O'Brien, welcome to the podcast. This week, we're turning our focus to the war in Israel and Gaza. We'll hear a couple of perspectives, first from a former CNN senior international correspondent who has decades of experience covering conflict and war in the Middle East. Our Damon is an Arab-American journalist who now heads up a charity which provides healthcare to children impacted by disaster and conflict. She is urging all of us, especially the media, not to oversimplify what is an extraordinary Nearly complicated story. Then we talked to a renowned historian, author, academic. He's also a former Israeli ambassador to the United States. Michael Oren is in Tel Aviv living out of a bomb shelter. He has fought in Gaza, diplomatically supported Israeli conflict with Hamas. He sees an Israeli ground incursion into Gaza as inevitable and a ceasefire as the end of the state of Israel. But first, let's look back at how it all started. This time.
1: We have breaking news out of Israel this morning where Hamas has launched a surprise attack within Israel's borders overnight. Israelis woke up today to find their worst nightmares had come true in the form injured. of a... Mess. Several have been killed, but that could be and much harder. Something at we have never before seen on this scale.
0: It began at 6.30am on Saturday, 7th of October. A barrage of Hamas rockets were fired from Gaza. Sirens rang out across Israel. At the same time, armed Gazan militants crashed through the heavily fortified border fence and opened fire. A music festival held in the desert in southern Israel became a massacre. 260 people were killed. It's like they take all the animals to one place and shoot them all. Hamas took hostages back into Gaza. More than 200 are still believed to be held.
2: October 7th, which was a sacred Jewish holiday, became the deadliest day for the Jewish people since the Holocaust. As the American president, there's no higher priority than the release and safe return of all these hostages. You are not alone. As long as the United States stands and we will stand forever, we'll not let you ever be alone.
0: It wasn't long before Israeli military planes took flight landing strikes across the Gaza Strip. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu made a statement announcing that Israel was calling up reserves to fight back on a scale and intensity its enemy had never before experienced, that they will pay an unprecedented price. We are at war, he said. Both sides blamed the other for the bombing of a hospital in Gaza which killed hundreds of Palestinians. Both sides blame the other for the war. Palestinians have been living under an Israeli military dictatorship now for more than 56 years. And
1: the images that we're seeing today in Israel are the same things that we Palestinians have been living with each and every day for the past 56 years. It is an
0: unprecedented attack and it will be followed by an unprecedented Israeli is
2: response against the Arab world and the You know, and they are raging
1: they a religious movement against Israel. The mainstream media cannot say this because they are afraid to ignite a religious war. And mm. what I say, it already is.
0: Power, electricity, fuel and goods were cut off from Gaza.
1: ...humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Doctors in the UN are warning of a looming catastrophe... ...which has allowed Israel to continue this brutal occupation for the past 56 years without any accountability.
0: Israel ordered the evacuation of 1.1 million people from the north of Gaza, signalling the threat of a ground-force invasion. The relentless campaign of airstrikes is ongoing. More than 1,400 Israelis have been killed. The death toll in Gaza has passed 5,000, more than half women and children. There's no ceasefire in sight.
2: The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has reiterated that Israel is planning for a ground offensive in Gaza. I want to be clear about the timing of the offensive. It will be determined unanimously by the war cabinet together with Benny Gantz, the chief of staff. We are working to ensure the best conditions for our fighters in the coming operation. We are determined that Hamas and ISIS pay the full price for carrying out their horrific
1: atrocities.
0: Our Damon is the founder and president of Charity Inara. International Network for Aid, Relief and Assistance, which provides support, medical and mental health care for children impacted by conflict, disaster and war. She was also a long-time senior international correspondent for CNN and has reported extensively from Israel and Gaza. Awa Damon, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. You've spent a lot of time in the Middle East covering war and, and conflict and you never become sensitized to that, when you learned about the scale of the Hamas attack this time, where did your mind go?
1: At first, because I have just seen so many images of, you know, bloodied handprints on walls of churches in Iraq, or the aftermath of any sort of violence, you know, pretty much anywhere across the region, I know to a certain degree what it looks like. And I felt that familiar sort of bile begin to rise up. But what I also know is how Israel responds to these types of attacks coming from Hamas, from Gaza. And I just had this horrible sinking sensation that this time was going to be like nothing Gazans had ever been through before.
0: Because you've written about that as well, that that what Hamas did here makes any other operation carried out by any other group against Israel feel like child's play and that Israel does have a right to respond, but respond to what extent do you think?
1: And that's really what a lot of this debate is centering around and that's where a lot of, I think the media, especially the Western media, really gets caught up in the drums and the rhetoric rhetoric of war, which as we saw post 9-11 was so divisive, so polarizing and ended up painting all Arabs, all Muslims with this terrorist brush. And look, I'm Arab American. My mom is Syrian. I grew up in a cross-cultural household. I was actually spared being a direct target of that because I'm blonde and I have green eyes. But I saw my friends going through it. And then I I came to the Middle East. I covered what was happening in Iraq pretty much from the very beginning. And there was such a level of, of nuance and explanation that was missing in the Western media and we're moving full speed into the madness of that trajectory all over. Again, yes, it is an extraordinarily complicated story, but that does not allow us to somehow abdicate in our responsibility when it comes to covering all different pieces of it. When we say a story is complicated, that basically means that it has many different pieces. The Israel-Palestine conflict has arguably more pieces than any other story of our time. And to cover it to a degree that does not show all of those different pieces is not just doing the viewers a disservice, but it's actually doing our entire industry and what we're meant to be standing for a disservice. Because you talk
0: about that that oversimplification and how it can be so dangerous and this polarization that we're seeing and how frightening that is. On the one hand, the rise of anti-Semitism, on the other hand, the, the growing Islamophobia. Why is that happening? What well maybe talk more to what we
1: can be doing to prevent that. You know, if you look at Western media, for example, you know, from the get-go and forget what happened just now. Let's look at historically speaking, how the Israeli-Palestinian conflict gets covered. Palestinians have been going out on the media airwaves for decades now saying, we need a solution. The occupation has to end. Israelis are taking away more of our land. The settlements are illegal. The United Nations has called them illegal. They're illegal under Israeli law. Our, you know, children and fathers and, you know, Sons are are getting detained. There is a policy of collective punishment. We have heard these voices over and over and over again in the Western media. The Western media needs to start listening to them as if they were hearing them for the very first time. And Palestinians are not wrong when they say that the rhetoric being used when referring to Palestinians and Palestinians being killed is very different to the rhetoric that is being used when journalists are talking about what is happening on the Israeli side. We, as journalists, need to actually perhaps pause and think, do I have a subconscious bias? Why did I choose to use this terminology when referring to one population versus when I was referring to another population? I do believe that a lot of us really need to stop and ask ourselves these questions on the flip side of it also there is an equal burden of responsibility on arab and non-western media because i've been watching a lot of you know round robin of various different arabic networks i'm an arabic speaker and there they did just about almost entirely bypass what it was that hamas did they Very rarely, some networks not at all, have spoken to the survivors of Hamas's October 7th attack. They have very rarely, if at all, spoken to the families of those who are still taken hostage inside. Look, our job is to hold the powerful accountable, yes. It is not to believe anybody who's giving us any form of information. We know by now, and I know having covered conflict for 20 years, that every single side is trying to play you. Every single side is trying to feed you information, and most sides are not truthful in what they're feeding you. We know this by now. We need to be very careful with that uh, information that we're getting but back to the role of, you know, the non-Western media and other media as well, and Western media, we need to really become hyper-focused on how do we help people understand this in an understanding that is as grounded in factual truth that also takes a very emotional component and a very deep, dense history into consideration
0: which um, segues nicely into something else that you've been researching extensively and in the lead up to or before, even before October the, the 7th, about transgenerational trauma and how violence can become embedded in DNA. Can you explain that and perhaps how it affects both Israelis and Palestinians respectively?
1: Yeah, it's something that I'm not an expert in. I actually just started you know, researching it and reading about it a few years ago. Um, but it's fascinating because a lot of science, especially starting from like the beginning of you know the 2000s, has really been focusing on this concept um, and studying how trauma can actually change our DNA, especially when it is unaddressed trauma. And what they have started to find is that what they thought was sort of junk DNA that didn't really define who we are has a very significant impact on who we are. When we're born, we're not just like this wiped hard drive that doesn't carry any of the trauma of our parents or even of our grandparents or even of our great-grandparents. So what you have specifically in the case of Israel and Palestine is two deeply, deeply traumatized generations. Israelis, Jews carry with them the trauma of the atrocities going back before the Holocaust, when they were being oppressed in a number of European countries, when they were being persecuted in Russia, add to that the horrors, I mean, literally the unimaginable horrors of the Holocaust, that has all been carried down through generations. That trauma has been carried down through generations. On the Palestinian side, you have the trauma even before 1948 and the lead up to it. And then over a million people losing their homes, being internally displaced or being pushed and having to live still up until today as refugees in, in, in Palestine and Israel's neighboring countries. They have never been able to let go of that trauma of being forcibly shoved out of their homes, seeing those homes destroyed and then seeing Israeli homes built on top of them because they are still being born. As refugees and they're still seeing the same thing happen over and over again palestinians have never been able to run away or even get away or even forget the trauma because it happens on a daily basis and now what experts are saying is that you know i mean obviously i i I wish that there was this sort of you know magical way to to rid you know all of this but we need to start having conversations about this particular topic because this does become embedded this will shift the way that you know the next generation and the generation after that act and react towards each other on a subconscious level we all need to begin to try to and again you know I'm not an expert on this but seek out ways to really dig into our own generational trauma because if it's not addressed it is going to become even more potentially dangerous you've
0: been talking to friends and colleagues in gaza since the the hamas attack can you describe the worsening humanitarian crisis there what you're hearing from your friends
1: you know actually i can't describe it because when i was covering syria there were a couple of points in time during you know the whole syria bombardment by the russians by the assad regime that the just flood of refugees the relentless violence we saw where i thought to myself we're gonna have to invent new words you know to describe what happened in syria and i don't have the words to describe what's happening in gaza i don't have the words to describe what you know my friend who's there um He's a doctor he's volunteering there with doctors without borders right now he's also a founding member of my charity he doesn't have the words to describe what he's seeing because he's never seen it before he's never seen the extent of this before and he's been in gaza multiple times but he's never been in a position where a siege was so complete that he had to use vinegar to clean burn wounds because they ran out of the proper cleaning solution. He's never been in a position where he has had to literally on a regular basis now come up with a new word that they have in Gaza that specifically refers to wounded child without surviving family. Like that is a thing in Gaza right now. He's never been in a position where Fuel supplies have run so low that they've been unable to have proper water pressure to sterilize equipment. And my friends who are in Gaza, most of whom are journalists, have never been in a position, and I don't think anyone has ever been in a position where they are part of 2.3 million people under a complete siege, cut off from everything, being bombed to pieces by a sovereign nation with the blessing of what is meant to be the world's most powerful democracy, the United States. I mean, one's brain just doesn't actually absorb and comprehend that sentence. What Hamas did was a war crime. What Israel is doing by laying siege to Gaza is a war crime. That is what every single person who's read the Geneva Convention is saying. That is what the United Nations is saying. You cannot lay siege to an entire population and deprive them of humanitarian assistance. Where does this go from here? You know, I have um, a lot of trajectories and none of them look good you know the there's one scenario where you end up with you know 2.3 million people or whoever's left of them in what starts off as a massive tent city either you know inside Gaza somewhere or as some Israelis have been you know floating the idea and an option that's out there pushing them over into egypt which you know egypt doesn't want for a number of reasons and which Gazans themselves don't want because again they're still carrying the trauma of 1948 and 1967 when they were or their families were pushed from their homes as refugees ostensibly to go back one day and you know 75 years later they haven't and then those tent cities become cities i mean when we talk about Palestinian refugee camps today, when we talk about the Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon, in Jordan, and Syria, those are built up neighborhoods now. They're slums. That could very easily happen again. There's another scenario, you know, where this goes beyond the borders and sucks in the entire region into something that we're not going to be able to predict the outcome of. It's hard not to feel like this is mutually assured self-destruction. It's hard to see how this moves away from, you know, the best-case scenario because there is no best-case scenario. But I think, you know, a lot of the decision-makers right now and a lot of the leadership needs to stop acting out of hate and a desire for revenge and vengeance. I mean, Israel's not going to have an easy time inside Gaza. People are drawing comparisons to ISIS and Mosul, and I don't think that that is even correct, because ISIS only occupied Mosul for four or five years. You know, Hamas has had 17, 18 years to build up their infrastructure there. You know, the Israeli army is not really engaged in this kind of you know underground street to street combat you know even the previous incursions into Gaza even the 2006 war with Hezbollah in Lebanon was not was not like this um but if we continue down this trajectory of you know one country being able to act with impunity and this level of civilian casualties in the name of national security it says a lot about you know the state of state of affairs of humanity as a whole
0: all right. Uh, well, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time and for your insights, and also your guidance as well on on reporting on the the conflict. When I say conflict, I mean the centuries old conflict, rather than you know what you've said. It's hard to even describe this as a as a conflict. This um, this moment in time. Thank you so much. Thank you.
2: Kia ora, I'm Adam Blair I played the great game of rugby league for the Storm, Tigers, Broncos and the Mighty Warriors And I'm Goran Paladin sports presenter and rugby league fanatic I won a World Cup too I played 51 tests for New Zealand Yeah, he's a national treasure, people Come on Blairy and I, we're joining forces for a brand new rugby league podcast called League of Our Own. Each week we talk Kiwis across the NRL and of course everything WAS. All the big names, the big stories. And some of my own stories too. if we can make them fit. We'll make time. Okay. League of Our Own with Blairy and Goran. Debut ep dropping on Wednesday afternoon and every Wednesday after that. You can listen through stuff.co.nz or wherever you get your podcast. Proudly brought to you by Snap Rentals. Mate, your your stories are way too long, eh? Nah, we've gotta take them on a journey. <laughs> oh the journey.
1: Yeah, of course. <laughs>
0: Michael Oren is a historian, former Israeli ambassador to the United States and author of Six Days of War, which is roundly considered the most comprehensive history of the 1967 Arab-Israeli war. And Michael Oren joins me now. Thank you so much for speaking with us.
2: Good to be with you, Tova. Hello.
0: You're in Tel Aviv, right? How are you and your family doing there? What's life like there now?
2: Well, we, a couple of hours ago we had a major um, barrage of missiles come through, hit in the neighborhood next to us. Uh, we've been had closer hits. We, we had a house destroyed in the, in the street next to us. So this happens uh, several times a day. Uh, actually talking to you from my bomb shelter, don't let the uh, books me fool you, it's a bomb shelter. Uh, many Israeli departments have them. And my kids, my grandkids are all in bomb shelters tonight. Um, but I think that's just the least of it. I think that the true trauma here is that 1500 our citizens, our families have been massacred and not just massacred, massacred in the most gruesome, beastly, monstrous way you can possibly imagine. And the stories, Tova just keep on coming out and I hear them every day. Every day, my son went to a, uh, a morning session for a, a family, a young woman who he grew up with was in his scouting troop, was in his karate class. Um, she, her husband, their three young children were all shot in their room. I, uh, it's hard for me to even talk about this point. I went to a funeral yesterday of an 18-year-old girl. They're only identifying the bodies now two weeks later because they were so mutilated. Um, In in Jewish tradition, you you bury people very, very fast. Uh, Took two weeks to identify this young woman's body. She was massacred by terrorists in front of her family. um, And the terrorists took pictures of the mutilation and then posted it on the family's Facebook. These things defy... Any definition of human behavior. I mean, some, some of our our ministers have been taking the task for calling the terrorists uh, animals, but I think it's actually insulting to the animals. I don't think animals would ever do this. to anyone. They enjoy it the way these these animals enjoyed it. So uh, these monsters enjoyed it. So this is this is the the mood here, and it's it's much deeper than just being in a bomb shelter. We've been in bomb shelters a lot of times. I was a, a soldier for many years. I've been under fire many times. A couple of Couple of rockets over the head—that that's uh, small-time stuff. But the the big-time stuff is this: it's these the, these families, entire families, wiped out in the most brutal way you can possibly imagine.
0: Uh, I got—I mean, it's it's impossible to grapple with, and also to grapple with the lasting implications of this as well. And we've just spoken to a, a former CNN correspondent about some of that lasting intergenerational trauma on, on both sides of this
2: conflict? Well, I think that uh, a huge percentage of Israelis, especially Israeli children, suffer from that post-traumatic stress syndrome, um, you know, combat-related uh, symptoms. But I can't imagine, even if the, these hostages, imagine if these hostages are released, and we dearly hope they will be released. How do they go back and live their lives again? I talked to a, my daughter-in-law's doctor today, a woman, terrific doctor. You may have seen the pictures of a, a young woman, Israeli woman, who was uh, raped multiple times and then carted through the streets of Gaza where everyone spat at her and kicked her. This is her daughter. Now, as far as we know, she's still alive and she comes back. But how does she come back? I have a very good friend, Um, I I know New Zealand's big on rowing. I'm 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 an oarsman, a member of a a, a rowing club and have been for many years, and a woman I row with, um, her son is in the army, 18 year old kid, and he was sent down to the Gaza border only days after the attack to collect body parts in a bag. And my rowing partner says to me, you know, I sent a boy off to the army and he came back a completely different human being. And I can't begin to understand how he's going to get through life now, seeing these things. So this, this, it's intensely personal, Toba, intensely personal. And then, you know, I'm, I have to think on the strategic level, because that's my job. And the strategic level says um, Israel, in order to restore security to our border, to our, our, our hinterland, not just our border, um, uh, in order to restore deterrence, and we have to have deterrence in order to survive in this neighborhood. Um, if our, neighborhood, our neighbors get wind that we're vulnerable, we're dead. Um, in order to restore the people's confidence in the, fa- in the state, because that has been deeply, our social contract has been ripped. And uh, in order to do that, we have to respond to Hamas terror. We have to uproot these terrorists. We have to destroy them and hope for a day when uh, Gaza will be under a peaceful governance and we can live in peace. But that right now, that's down the road. To do this, we have to take very drastic measures because Hamas fights within its own civilian population. It just does it uses them as human shields. It's going to use the hostages as human shields. We're certainly going to use a million Palestinians as human shields. So we have to get them to evacuate the area. By the way, we have 300,000 people who have been evacuated from their homes. You know, they're not living out in fields. They're living in people's houses all over the country. So you know, everyone's evacuating. We have to evacuate them. Because not only is Hamas booby-trapped and mined every street in Gaza, it's what's under the street. It's this entire city under Gaza. And that's hard to imagine. you are talking about dozens, maybe hundreds of kilometers of tunnels and bunkers. And um, our soldiers are not going to have to fight alley to alley, feet, street to street. They have to fire tunnel to tunnel and bunker to bunker. And guess what? In the bunkers, in the tunnels are the hostages. So it's not like you can just you know flood them. You can't. So um, in terms of a morally, logistically, tactically, militarily nightmarish situation, this is what we got. But we really have no choice.
0: So and so let's talk about that and, and what a ground offensive might look like. The United States has raised concerns that Israel lacks achievable military objectives in Gaza. You have fought in Gaza before. In fact, you've been involved, I think, either through fighting or in diplomacy surrounding five rounds of fighting with Hamas. Do you think that the Biden administration is right, that the IDF is not yet ready for a ground
2: incursion? I don't know. Again, I'm not I'm not in uniform right now. I spent many years in uniform. I'm not in one now. Trust me, I'd rather be in uniform. Right now, it's frustrating. Many people feel that way. Um, I I do know this. We have called up 360,000 reserves, um, plus a standing army of at least 100,000. That number is classified. We're talking about a military force that is roughly the same as that which uh, the coalition sent into Iraq in 2003. But there's a limit to how long this force can remain mobilized. These are young people, uh, your age, 20s 30s they're the backbone of our economy they're the most productive part of our economy they have left their young families their young children to go out there and serve um the limit in which we can push this so ready or not ready at some point we're gonna have to move and so there are other costs too there are other I mean, costs too the you know the narrative is changing the world it used to be you know for a couple of weeks there was about israeli jewish suffering now it's about palestinian suffering and that's going to have it impact on the time and space that our army has to act because you're going to get pressures on governments you may feel it in new zealand already they say let's oh let's have a ceasefire let's have a ceasefire let's negotiate for the hostages which sounds perfectly rational doesn't it the only problem is that a ceasefire means the end of the state of israel and let me explain a ceasefire means hamas wins it means hamas literally gets away with mass murder and I don't know whether you have children, (laughs) but I don't know, if you did, you'd want to raise your kids in a a country where down the road, and and by the way, where I'm talking to in South Tel Aviv, Gaza's a half an hour away, Uh, you have a force of thousands, actually tens of thousands of armed terrorists who are going to come into your house and take your kids and dismember them and burn them, okay? That... It becomes the the place that the country becomes uninhabitable with a ceasefire. That's very difficult to explain to the world. This, you know, this is my my unfortunate job to try to explain this because you have to sort of get into our mentality. But that's it. A ceasefire would be
0: a loss to your mind. Conversely, I mean, Hamas is not the collective of the Palestinian people, right? Hamas itself plays a role, as you've mentioned, in terrorizing and controlling Gazans in the United Nations, the World Health Organization, humanitarian and aid groups, they're all calling for a permanent humanitarian corridor. Why hasn't that happened?
2: Well, it it can't come from our side, it has to come from the Egyptian side, because um, the crossing, and here i got to talk from personal experience, uh, full disclosure, Uh, I was in the Israeli government, and one of my jobs for a period of the Israeli government, quite unfortunately, was to be in charge of Gaza. And I probably learned more in that year than I learned in 20 years of university. Um, And what I learned was that everything you know about human decency, everything you know about um, civilization, when it comes to Hamas and Gaza, you gotta throw that out the window. Um, Hamas uses hundreds of Palestinian kids to dig its tunnels. They die every year. They die by the dozens. The tunnels collapse, they don't care. Um, We had this one checkpoint uh, called ironically the Vineyard of Peace, Keren Shalom. And that had a capacity of 1,200 very large flatbeds, flatbed trucks of um, material, food, clothing, whatever you name it, that went into Gaza every day. The, the blockade that we had was only about military goods. And, um, and there's a big myth that there was a blockade of food and tomatoes, all these different myths out there. It's not true. Um, but Hamas would only let 400 trucks in because Hamas wanted to keep the population hungry and dependent on Hamas. They they don't care about the Palestinians. <laughs> they don't care. You know, they 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 will use them as human shields. And, and it, you know, one of the things you learn also is that for all Hamas' cruelty to its own population, they're very popular. Um, the people of Gaza voted Hamas in. They celebrated Hamas. Um, and so, yes, I know there are probably many thousands of Palestinians who hated Hamas and wanted to be free of Hamas. But there are also many Palestinians mm-hmm. who didn't. So it's more complicated than you can imagine
0: hundred percent in war, it's, we can't differentiate, can we? So I wonder if a ground incursion is possible without seeing an enormous escalation in in civilian casualties.
2: Well, we hope not. We hope they're away from the fighting area. Many, some of them, have not moved from that fighting area, and Hamas is trying to prevent. Them Where do they go? Pardon me. Where do they go? They go to south Southern Gaza Strip is agricultural. It's open. It's not. It's not. It's not urban, and there's room there. There's room there, and I, I you know, again. I personally don't want to see anybody suffer. I don't take joy, you know, take any joy out of it. But the alternative is to see these people in a, in a combat zone, and being used as human shields, and that would mean a casualty level that would be many dozens of times higher.
0: In light of everything you've just said, New Zealand um, is the only country in the Five Eyes alliance, the United States, United Kingdom, Canada and Australia, which has only declared the military arm of, of Hamas as a terrorist entity. Our Five Eyes partners have designated the entirety of the Hamas movement, a terrorist organisation. What's your assessment of New Zealand's position?
2: I think it's a distinction without a difference. Okay, There is no military wing, there's no the civil wing. Hamas is Hamas. And I think that um, it is morally indefensible to make that distinction. Um, And Hamas itself really doesn't make that distinction. There were were terrorist groups that try to make that distinction, um, but not Hamas. Hamas is Hamas. And um, I I, I would very much welcome a change in in, uh, New Zealand's position.
0: Indeed, the government is, I think, reassessing or looking to reassess uh, as well. Uh, Barack Obama, former United States President, he has warned that any Israeli military strategy that ignores the human costs of the war could ultimately backfire. And I'll read his quote here. The Israeli government's decision to cut off food, water and electricity to a captive civilian population in Gaza threatens not only to worsen a growing humanitarian crisis, it could further harden Palestinian attitudes for generations, erode global support for Israel, play into the hands of Israel's enemies and undermine long-term efforts to achieve peace and stability in the region. You've used an overdraft analogy in the the past. Can you explain that and, and whether you agree with the, the former US president?
2: So, obviously, I've had um, much experience with uh, President Obama. That was the period when I was in Washington. And uh, I regard his ideas with respect, even when I disagree with him. Um, and you know, I would disagree here. I think that uh, Israel needs all the tools at its disposal to try to get its hostages released. And, and again, you have to go into the world of, of, of Gaza, which is not the world of, you know, I don't know, Christchurch. It's different. And that is that if you have if you have any supplies going into Gaza, Hamas takes the huge chunk of it. And so we're not in the business of supporting a terrorist organization. We also need leverage to get our hostages back. Um, and and trust me, the terrorists have no shortage of water, no shortage of electricity. It's their own people. Okay, but having said that, I think the, the president is correct in saying that, and I think I was intimating this earlier, Tova, that we're up against a certain clock. And the clock is this, that... Um, we had a certain amount of empathy, much of grace because of the horrors we endured here. The pictures now are changing. I just got off a news, uh, several international news broadcasts, and it's all about what's happening with the Palestinians. People have forgotten almost the, the suffering that our people went through. And that translates into pressure on governments. And those governments then can turn around and ask, seek a ceasefire in the Security Council. And as I said earlier, a ceasefire for us is basically death. So it, it, it's... the president is actually touching on on a reality that I know quite well. I've often said that Hamas and other terrorist groups don't have a military strategy. They have a military tactic. Okay, they know they can't destroy. Even the horrors they visited upon us with all the thousands of rockets, they can't destroy us. Look, I'm sitting and talking to you, right? I'll go down and have dinner later. It's not, they're not going to destroy us. What they can do is they have a military tactic in which they fire rockets at us or kill our civilians. And then they get us to shoot back. So Hamas wins twice. It gets it kills us, and then it gets us to kill civilians or used as uh, human shields. That serves a media strategy, okay, where the press turns against us, and the media strategy turns a diplomatic strategy, where governments start to impose ceasefires, and then finally the diplomatic strategy serves a legal strategy, where international criminal courts will brand us war criminals, and that could result in. And boycotts, sanctions and denying us the right to defend ourselves at all they're very clever the terrorists the terrorists make no mistake about it they do this war after war they 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 whittle away the at our legitimacy and it's it's a very difficult pattern to break um and I don't have any magic wand to describe it I really don't um but it's going to happen this time as well so I think that's what the president is getting at uh, as for hardening the hearts of Palestinians I don't know Um, we have been engaged in a conflict uh, with the Palestinians and the Arab world, keep in mind, uh, since the beginning of last century. And now we see how we have made peace with Egypt and Jordan. We've made peace with four countries who signed on to the Abraham Accords. We were on the verge of reaching peace with the, say, the most influential Arab country of Saudi Arabia. Um, hearts can get hardened, hearts can get Softened. Um, I'm an optimist, an optimist by nature, and we'll have to see. Right now, I know that with Hamas in power in Gaza, the hope for any type of progress toward peace there is actually less than zero. So, do you uh, fear
0: an expansion of the war to to further regional conflicts?
2: It's possible, but I think that there are many powder kegs in this region. Someone suggested to me tonight a um, what they call an Arabist, a a uh, Specialists in the Arab world whether this conflict would touch off another Arab Spring because boiling beneath the surface of the Arab world is a lot of discontent and a lot of anger and frustration and what could trigger it would not necessarily frustration at us but trigger their own governments and I think uh, Arab governments are, are are sitting uneasy tonight because of that they are aware of that.
0: Mm. Can I end on a, a question that was asked from the very beginning um, of the events of October the, the 7th, and one that will be fully investigated in the fullness of time, but are we are we any closer to understanding how this was able to happen? Israel has one of the most sophisticated surveillance systems in the world. It is one of the most militarized, it has the Iron Dome. How was it so totally blindsided?
2: Right now, I don't have an answer for you. That's going to have to be investigated, clearly, clearly major failures here and it's interesting our our secret, our our chief of staff our head of intelligence the head of internal security they've all said i've accept responsibility and that's code for when this is over i'm going to resign when this is going to be a major investigation and responsibility will be apportioned um will be assigned um in this country, no one's above responsibility. I don't know who resigned after 9-11 in America or even resigned after Pearl Harbor, but it doesn't happen here. People, people are forced to resign and, and um, accept the consequences. It's going to be a painful process because one of the, probably the most important thing we have to do after we uh, reestablish security and deterrence is to begin to repair what happened here because people feel let down by the state. And I, you know, I, I'm not a spokesman for the state. I can tell you, I'm a citizen i tell you what my children think. They feel let down. They feel insecure. They're angry. And frankly, they should be. Okay, but there'll be a time for that. This is not the time. Now we have to fight.
0: Okay, Michael, thank you so much for your time today. I'm very, very grateful. Thank you.
2: Thank you, and I hope someday to visit your very beautiful country.
0: For sure he expects that because we are living in Gaza and this is, we expect it anytime. After one hour, two hours, one day, two days, you never know. This house will be destroyed, the war will come back and we are not
1: waiting anything from anyone because this is our situation, this is Gaza.
0: Those are the words of Mohammed el Sersik. I met him in Gaza in 2017. Three and a half years earlier during the 2014 war, he had been at home with his five sons when a 130 kilogram Israeli bomb came through the ceiling. His youngest boy was just one year old, his eldest, seven. When it happened?
1: Yeah.
0: Yes. Oh my gosh, how, what, was like? what was that like? He tells me, Thanks for my God, we were lucky. They were all in the room. I had injured in my hand. Even after the initial shock and injuries had faded, the family had to sleep in a room with the undetonated bomb bedded in the floor. As Mohammed said, this is Gaza. This is Gaza. Camera operator Simon Morrow and I spent just one day on the Gaza Strip. Unlike the 2.2 million people who live there, we were free to come and go, though not without permission from both the Israeli government. And Hamas. The Israeli border guard at the heavily fortified checkpoint had warned me it would be dangerous to travel there with my name, which, as well as my mother picking it up in Papua New Guinea, where I was born, also means good in Hebrew. Crossing the border requires a ride in a cart on the back of a motorbike down a long fenced tunnel lined by barbed wire and the concrete block border fence. So heavily fortified, it's hard to imagine it could be knocked aside with Hamas militants and bulldozers as it was at dawn on October 7th. The constant buzz of drones overhead also made it seem impossible that surveillance teams wouldn't pick up Hamas fighters sailing over in gliders or on boats trying to reach Israel by sea. The journey's like passing back in time. The highways and high-rises of Israel make way for bomb-marked buildings and donkey-drawn carts. Children walk to school along the part of the strip closest to Israel, leaning against bullet-pocked walls. The area isn't considered worth reconstructing because of the high likelihood of another attack. This is Gaza. We travelled around Gaza with the United Nations Mine Action Service and their heavily armoured trucks. Our movements were restricted and monitored. Hamas wouldn't allow us anywhere near the entry points, often under houses, for the vast labyrinth of tunnels that sit below the surface of the Gaza Strip, and where many of the more than 200 Israeli hostages are likely being held right now. We were permitted to visit a site where an Israeli bomb weighing nearly a tonne and containing 500 kilograms of explosives destroyed a school. In 2017, the school had just been rebuilt. 2,000 children were due to soon be running wild within its colourful concrete walls. Children hungry to learn, like those we met at the time, desperate to practice their English with us, shouting excitedly into our microphone. How are you?
1: Oh, I'm fine. How are you? Five cents. Five cents, how are you?
0: <laughs> their play in stark contrast to the far too young child we saw slinging an assault rifle over their shoulder, helping guard the Hamas checkpoint when we arrived. The United Nations is now reporting that 206 schools have been damaged since the 7th of October, at least 29 of them UN run. And the UN Relief and Works Agency says 29 of its staff have also been killed since, half of them teachers. Almost all the areas we visited in 2017 appear to have been under heavy bombardment from retaliatory Israeli strikes in the last few weeks. It's been impossible to find out if the homes and buildings we visited are still standing, or if the people, including all the children we met, are still alive. This is Gaza. If you'd like to get in touch, I always appreciate hearing from you, tova at stuff.co.nz, and we'll resume normal programming with our staff political experts next week too, when politicians are hopefully saying a bit more than just no comment on coalition negotiations. You've been listening to Tova, hosted and produced by me, Tova O'Brien. There is a new episode every Thursday. You can listen to them all at staff.co.nz slash Tova or wherever you get your podcasts. If you follow us on your favourite podcast app, you'll get the latest episode automatically. And keep an eye on the feed for bonus shortcasts this week. For those interested in diving into the deep history that has brought us to this current war in Israel and Gaza, we'll be releasing a potted history from Michael Oren, who you heard from before, what he called, quote, about 3,000 years in a nutshell. Thank you very much to audio editor overachiever Connor Scott and this week's Cameo executive producer, Laura Heathcote. Most of all, thanks to you for listening. A week is a long time in politics. We got you. Ka kite. Holding the powerful to account takes time and resources. Show your support and visit stuff.co.nz/contribute. That's stuff.co.nz/contribute.